Salvation costs us absolutely nothing. It is free. It's by God's grace. It's, it's a gift from God. And yet, although salvation costs us nothing, it demands of us absolutely everything. As we've seen even so far in the book, fishermen must leave their boats and nets in order to follow Christ. Or tax collectors like Levi must leave their tax booth. Peter must leave behind his false or incomplete conception of the Messiah. We know from Matthew 10 and Luke 14, furthermore, that even loyalty to parents and one's family must be abandoned in place of supreme loyalty to Christ. As Jesus says there, those who do not hate father and mother. Whoever loves father, mother, son, or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, cannot be my disciple. You see, the call to follow Christ isn't some additional obligation we simply add to our lives, leaving the rest of our priorities, loyalties, and ambitions essentially unaltered, to sort of add it to the mix, co-equal among the rest. No, the call to follow Christ lays total claim over our entire lives. Judging and rejecting all competing allegiances, subordinating the whole of our lives to the one who summons us to follow him. Today's passage provides us a picture of what Jesus taught in Mark 8, uh, using contrasting examples of the rich man and the disciples. And we'll see in our passage there's essentially three scenes that we'll walk through that showcase this contrast. But the passage is sort of a a perfect picture of what we saw in Mark 8 as we began the middle section of the Gospel of Mark where Jesus teaches more explicitly the, the way of the Messiah, the, the way in which he is walking towards the cross, and thereby, uh, in extension, the way of those who would follow after him. If you would, turn to Mark eight thirty four. And this passage serves as a grid of sorts for what we will see in our passage today. Mark 8.34, as Jesus speaks to the crowds, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life, seek to preserve it, that is, to hold on to what this life is for him, they'll lose it. But whoever who will lose his life for Jesus' sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, to hold on to his life, but to forfeit his soul? And what can a man give in return for his soul? What we'll see today in our passage, comparing the rich man and the disciples, is that those thought to be first in line for God's kingdom won't actually enter it. While those who currently seem last in line, like the disciples who in this life give up all that they have in order to follow Christ, they will in the end receive eternal life. Let me say that again. While those who are thought to be first in line for God's kingdom 
won't actually enter it. They will, in the end, be seen last within the order of God's kingdom. Those who currently seem last in line will receive first place, first prize, eternal life. Let's begin as we walk through the three scenes. First of all, we have this scene in verses 17 to 22 where Jesus challenges the allegiances of a man who by human standards seems to be the ideal candidate for eternal life. He has morality on his side. He has wealth on his side. And what this scene teaches us is that those who seem to be shoo-ins for God's kingdom will actually fail to enter if they refuse to forsake all and follow Christ. Read verse 17 with me. And as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The, the man asks this question. He seems quite sincere. He, he kneels down before Jesus, and he's inquiring about what it takes, what he must do to inherit eternal life. Or elsewhere in the passage, we get similar phrases like entering the kingdom of God, to be saved, the disciples say, or receiving treasure in heaven. These are all seemingly synonymous terms to, to experience God's eternal kingdom salvation. And Jesus replies in verse 18, Why do you call me good? For no one is good except God alone. Now Jesus is not denying that he's God here. Rather, adopting the man's perspective, Jesus is challenging his conception of goodness, his standard of goodness. God alone is good. You see, this man seems to be operating from the perspective that his morality is what can gain him access to eternal life. Even the way the man frames the question, he says, what must I do? His focus seems to be on what he does, which is confirmed by Jesus' response, where Jesus' line of questioning, starting with the Ten Commandments, God's law, will finally aim to expose this man's ultimate allegiance, God or money. Later in the passage, as we'll see, Jesus is going to teach the impossibility of humans achieving salvation for themselves. Verse 27, it is impossible for man. With man, it is impossible to be saved. The approach of this man, in other words, contrasts with what Jesus just taught us immediately before in the immediately preceding paragraph in chapter 10, verse 15, where Jesus has, the, has, has a, a child, children that are coming to him, and he says, Truly I say to you, whoever, in verse 15, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, humbling themselves like a child, will not enter it. Receiving it humbly as a child versus this man who is seeking what he must do, what he must accomplish. So Jesus, by saying, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Jesus is already, I think, laying the foundation here by challenging this man's notion of goodness. You think you're good, but your view of goodness is far too low. God alone is good. Let's raise our standard of goodness to where it ought to be. God himself is that standard of goodness. 
And we oftentimes do the same thing, do we not? That it's oftentimes quite easy if we, if we, if we ask someone, are, do you think you're good? Or maybe you're talking to someone on the street. Do you think that someday when you die that uh, God will accept you into his kingdom? And oftentimes people say, yeah, I think I'm a good person. We oftentimes measure our goodness based on ourselves or comparing ourselves to others. I'm not so bad as this person. But Jesus raises that bar and says the standard of goodness ought to be God himself. And so Jesus cites the second table of the commandments, what is sometimes called the second table. That is the second half, those that deal with how we treat others. Uh, He replaces do not covet with do not defraud, maybe giving that command a more specific application to this rich man of what coveting would look like for the rich is actually defrauding. But he says in verse 19, Sir, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Verse 20. The man said to Jesus, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus sees the man, he looks deeply at him, and he loves the man. And he says, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. You want true wealth? Sell your earthly wealth, and you will have treasure, true treasure, in heaven. And come, follow me. Jesus says to the man, you think you've observed God's commandments? All right, let's start with the very first one, the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Sir, your money is your God. You've made an idol out of your wealth. And as Matthew 6, 24 says, you cannot serve God and money. So sell what you have. Give all the proceeds to the poor and then come and follow me. Verse 22, the man is disheartened by the saying. The idea is that he's threatened by the saying. It's it's his word for sort of an ominous storm on the horizon. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And here we learn, for the first time, this is a rich, wealthy man, which is the reason he goes away sorrowful. Jesus calls this man to do, notice, exactly what he said in Mark chapter 8, as we already read. That if anyone would come after me, Mark 8, 34, he let him deny himself, in this case his wealth. Let him take up that cross and follow me. As Jesus warned in verse 35, whoever would save his life will lose it. This man wants to hold on to his life right now, his wealth, what his life means to him now, his wealth. He will ultimately lose it fail to gain true life, eternal life. What does it profit this man to have gained the whole world but ultimately forfeit his soul? What can this man give in return for his soul? And that is exactly what this man has done. This is a perfect picture of what we saw even in Mark 4. You remember Mark 4, the parable of the soils, where the the, the seed of the gospel, the gospel, the message of, of, of the coming kingdom is thrown out and it lands on different soils representing, representing different pe- people. 
And one of those soils is, is soils where the seed is sown among thorns. And, and that passage in Mark 4 says this, this is those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Riches, the concerns of the things of the world, choke out the gospel and it doesn't take root. This brings us to the second scene, verse 23 to 27. Here we see Jesus explains what the disciples just witnessed. The impossibility of the rich inheriting God's kingdom, as he says. The message of this scene is this, that only by God's grace is one able to forsake all to follow Christ. Verse 23 Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, to submit to the reign of God, the saving reign of God. The, the imagery here, it's taking what, what was the largest animal in Palestine and, and then comparing that with one of the smallest things you could think of at that time as well. The, the, a camel, this massive animal, and then a needle. And of course, the idea here, here is it's as, it's as difficult for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God as that camel could easily pass through the needle, which it can't. It's impossible for a camel to enter the eye of a needle. And so Jesus is using this, this very vivid language. I think of like those toys that, that uh, like our kids have, my, my youngest, and, and they, they, you got to stick like a, a square peg in a round hole and it doesn't fit and, and that's difficult. But imagine if, if it's, those are actually the same size, right? They're just the wrong shape. But imagine if it's a camel and a needle. Now, why is wealth such a hindrance? Why, is, why does wealth make it such an impossibility? Well, as we just saw in Mark 4, where the seed is thrown, thrown among those thorns, wealth is that thorn that chokes out the gospel. Riches deceive. They, 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 they maybe nullify our sense of dependency, our sense of need. When we, are not, when we lack poverty in terms of material wealth, we oftentimes grow cold to our sense of poverty spiritually. We feel comfortable. And I think we can apply what Jesus says here, this idea of the difficulty of entering the kingdom, not just to those who are wealthy, not just to money, but to anything that functions like wealth did for this man. Something where we are not willing to leave it behind in order to follow Christ. Something where Christ says to us, deny yourself and take up your cross. And, and we say, no, I can't do it. Maybe it's our ambitions. What we want to make of our life, our, our, our career, or our social standing. Or maybe it's our view of ethics. We don't want to submit what we view as right and wrong to Christ's lordship, our lifestyle. 
Like this man, we choose to walk away instead of following Christ. Now, to be clear, Jesus isn't calling everyone to do exactly as this man did, to sell, to literally sell all and give it away. For instance, we have examples in Scripture of wealthy individuals who are a part of God's kingdom. Folks like Abraham, who God blessed with material possessions, or even Job, as Job is stripped of his material possessions. At the end, he achieves much wealth again. God gives him much wealth. Or we see even in the, in the Gospels, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, the man who uh, buries Jesus, is said to be a follower of Jesus and a wealthy man. We have examples in Scripture of saints who retained their wealth and used it as assets for the sake of the gospel. We, we know of some women from Luke 3, for instance, who funded Jesus' ministry out of their wealth. Or we can think of Acts 4, where the early church is selling what they have, but, but, but the property is still theirs to do with as they please. And they're nonetheless using their wealth, selling lands, maybe selling houses, in order to take care of those in their midst. But nonetheless, we wouldn't want to sort of too quickly brush aside the seriousness with which this passage um, addresses the dangers of wealth. Wealth is dangerous. It's incredibly dangerous. It's like some sort of toxic material that you should be careful and put gloves on if you're going to handle it. We might say, as we look at the way Scripture speaks of the danger of wealth, we wouldn't want to wish it on our worst enemy. If this is the danger of it, that it makes entering the kingdom of God impossible, according to human standards, then, then, then we should be incredibly cautious with it. For this man and many like him, his wealth was an idol keeping him from following Christ. And so Jesus was simply telling him to do what he's told all of us to do. Remember Mark 9? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. In this case, if your wealth causes you to sin, sir, sell it. Give it away. It's better to enter life crippled, enter eternal life crippled than with two hands to go into hell, or to enter eternal life poor than with all your money to forfeit your soul, as Jesus says. And this passage, just as an aside, is, is an incredibly strong critique of the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel that says that essentially Jesus has come, the good news is that Jesus comes not merely to save us, but, but even more so to make us wealthy and to make us healthy and to prosper us by material standards, that is. You see, G this man, Jesus, actually seeks to rid him of his idol of wealth. The prosperity gospel does the exact opposite. It makes Jesus a means to attaining wealth, thereby putting Jesus in service to our idols. For those who experience wealth, even those of us who maintain it and don't sell it all, nonetheless, Scripture gives us pretty serious instructions. 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you want to turn there. Otherwise, I'll read that for you. As Paul closes his epistle to Timothy here, he says in verse 6, chapter 6, verse 6, 1 Timothy 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Notice the radical nature of, of how Paul views material possessions here. He says, For we have brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. So that means if we have food and clothing, 
With these, we will be content. That's all we need. But those, notice the seriousness of the statement, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Wanting to have wealth, wanting riches, is to fall into a temptation. We should not want that. Why, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves from many pangs, just like we saw Mark 4. It, it chokes out the gospel. Look down at verse 17. So what do we do if we do have wealth? What, is, what does Paul say in verse 17? Notice this, as for the rich in this present age. I love the qualifiers he gives in this paragraph too. The rich in this present age. In other words, there's a form of being rich that's not defined by this present age. A more important form of being rich. But as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of worldly riches, we might say, but put their hope on God. For God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It's God who gives us the true riches. Let the wealthy do good. To be rich, how? Not ultimately rich in their material possessions, but notice this, rich in good works by being generous and ready to share their material wealth, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life, not their present life, but what is truly life, what is true treasure. Back to Mark chapter 10, we see that the disciples, though, in response to this teaching, are absolutely astonished. Verse 26, and they were exceedingly astonished, and they said to Jesus, Jesus, then who on earth can be saved? Then who can be saved? You see, wealth was, a common view of wealth was that it was actually a sign of God's blessing. To be wealthy was to, see, was to be seen as being favored by God. And so Jesus is flipping their expectations. Plus, this man is, is, by all external accounts, moral. If we take it at face value that he really did, for the most part, at least generally speaking, you know, observe those commandments he said he, he observed, which Jesus doesn't challenge him on. This man is a moral man. He's a wealthy man. He seems to be blessed. And if Jesus is saying that this guy can't be saved, it's impossible. It's like, it would be like him being a camel going through the eye of a needle. Well, if he can't, then who can Jesus? And what's interesting here, it's worth noting that as well, that this man's morality, that is being a good person, doesn't save him. Our morality can't save us. Being a good person, like sometimes it's common for people to think, well, as long as someone's a good person, they're sort of good with God. But what Jesus assumes here is that only he can save. It's only in relationship to him, by following him, that one is saved, that one enters the kingdom, that one has eternal life. Which shows us that Christianity is about far more than morality. Of course, Christianity and following Christ has deep moral implications. But at its heart, you can, you can be a moral person and be bankrupt in terms of treasure in heaven, in terms of relationship with Christ. Christianity is not ultimately about morality, but about Jesus. It's about a relationship with Christ. 
But Jesus responds to them in verse 27. He looks at them and he said, with man, it is impossible. Yes, I have told you that it is impossible. Impossible for human beings in their sin, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Left to ourselves, in other words, sinful human beings, we don't have what it takes to abandon our idols and follow Christ. It will take more than a miracle for us to give up our idols. We never will if left to ourselves. This only happens by the grace of God. Which brings us then to our third scene where Jesus comforts his disciples by explaining what is in store for those who have then indeed forsaken all to follow Christ. And we learn this, in this scene we learn this, that those who do forsake all in order to follow Christ will actually receive far more than they ever were called to give up. That those who do forsake all to follow Christ will actually receive more, far more than they ever gave up. Jesus, or Peter opens this scene um, with this remark. Peter began to say to him in verse 28, See, we have left everything and followed you. Now, I'm not entirely sure why Peter makes this remark or what's going on in his head, but there seems to be some sense of, of consternation, some sort of, some sort of angst, some question. Like, what does this mean, Jesus? And Jesus answers him in verse 29, Truly, I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Again, this is a picture of what we saw in Mark chapter 8. Peter and his disciples have done the very thing that Jesus called for in Mark 8. Some of the same languages used, where Jesus calls them to take up their cross and follow me. And what have they done? Peter has said, we have followed you, the same language. And as Jesus says, He calls them to leave for my sake and for the gospel. And that is what Jesus says. No one who has left all these things for my sake and for the gospel. This is the very thing that the rich man failed to do. As we saw, the rich man saved his life. He refused to forsake his idol. He kept his wealth, his his very life. And yet he will ultimately lose it. He will fail to inherit eternal life. But on the other hand, like the disciples who have forsaken all to follow Christ, that is, they're actually losing their life, they will in the end save their life. They will ultimately gain. And this is what Jesus is saying, where he, he talks about the cost, like there is a cost to following Christ. We must take up our cross Here is this idea he mentions of of leaving family. No one who has left family, as we saw. No one who, as Jesus says in in Luke 14 and Matthew 10, no one who hates father and mother, no one who loves father, mother, son or daughter, brother, sister more than me, can can follow me, is worthy of being my disciple. There's a cost involved in following Christ. And yet he says, 
in this age, no one who does that will not receive a hundredfold brothers and sisters, etc. And I, I, it's not that these are literal brothers and sisters, of course, that replace our family, but it's the idea of speaking about the church, I think, that we receive a, a family if we lose our biological family. That if we have to give up houses and lands, we receive Christian hospitality, which, which many Christians know if you travel in different places, Christians are often able to and willing to extend a helping hand. So we give up, certainly, but we also gain Christ and Christ's community. We see this in the early church in Acts 2 and 4 as, as believers are selling what they have in order to take care of each other. They have fellowship with one another. Or one of the big themes that we see across the New Testament is this idea of how these Gentile churches were taking up an offering to care for the saints in Jerusalem who had experienced hardship. The Christians are with each other and they take care of each other. Jesus says that we will receive these things in this life, but he also mentions that we'll receive persecutions. Isn't that, it's kind of the outlier in the list, right? Some, you'll, you're going to receive, you know, sisters and mothers and, and, and children, all these things, houses and persecutions, with persecutions. Yeah, and that, that fits what Jesus told us in Mark 8, right? That if we're going to follow Christ, it's to take up our cross. So I don't think Jesus is sort of painting the Christian life now, in this age, in just sort of rose-colored glasses, as if he's just promising everything's going to be fine, everything's going to be easy. The reality is we don't always feel the blessing of the Christian life. Even though it is gain, sorry, even though it is gain, keeping you on your toes, we don't always feel that it's gain. Things are oftentimes difficult. We oftentimes face hardship. So ultimately, the truest gain comes in the age to come, Jesus says, when we receive eternal life. Eternal life. This passage reminds me of Romans 8, 17 to 18, where Paul says that we are fellow heirs with Christ. We're going to receive an inheritance as, as, as the brothers and sisters of Christ, along with him, on his coattails. We're those fellow heirs with Christ he says, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Just as Christ's path to glory was through suffering, it was cross and then resurrection and glory. So our path as well to resurrection and glory with Christ is to first suffer with Christ, to take up our cross as he takes up his cross. He calls us to take up our cross. That's the unexpected way of Jesus that the Gospel of Mark talks about. But then Paul says, that means that I consider the sufferings of this present time not even worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. If I suffer now and I'm, I'm called to suffer with Christ, ultimately so that I can share with Christ in his glory, resurrected bodies, our full adoption as Paul says, that's so glorious, it's a joke to even compare our present sufferings to it. It's not even worth the time of day to make that comparison. It's that grand of a difference. In other words, yes, following Jesus is costly. This passage teaches that blatantly. But to conceive of following Jesus simply in terms of what it costs us is like a groom who only considers what he's giving up in order to marry his bride. Like, yes, a groom gives up certain things in order to get married, right? 
But the groom is going to be like, who cares? I get the bride. And so, yes, following Christ does demand that we give things up, but we gain so much more. We gain the treasure that is Christ, that Jesus demands everything of us, but in return, he gives us so much more, so much more than we're ever called to give up. We get a far greater treasure than anything that we could ever be called to sacrifice. We get Christ himself. We get eternal life with Christ and eternal fellowship with his family, the church. And so Jesus teaches, really the summary of this whole passage in verse 31. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. That is, the many who are first, that is like this rich young ruler, this rich man who seemed to be first in line to God's kingdom. In the end, he's actually going to be seen as last within the order of how God's kingdom is organized, with how God's kingdom works. He won't actually inherit the kingdom. However, the disciples, those who seem to be last in this life, those who give up everything, the disciples and those like him, they will be first in line. They will get first prize. They will inherit eternal life. This is the unexpected ranking of Christ's kingdom. Those who are first are last. Those who are last are first. So again, while those who are thought to be first in line for God's kingdom, like this rich man, won't actually enter it, they will be last in the order of God's kingdom. Those who currently seem last in line in this life, those who give up everything now to follow Christ, will in the end receive first prize, so to say, eternal life itself. And so if you're here today and you are not yet a believer, we would ask you, this passage would confront you with that question, what will you do with this Jesus of Nazareth? What will your response to him be? Nothing will save apart from a relationship with Christ. Denying yourself, taking up your cross, and truly falling after him finding the salvation that is in Christ. Will you be like this rich man who sees the cost and says the cost is simply too much? I can't give that up. I won't do it. Or will you be like the disciples who counted the cost, who denied themselves, they take up their cross, and they fall after Christ? And what awaits them, the last, is to be first. We'd love to speak with you this morning if that, is that, if that is a new message to you or if that's something that you're wrestling with. Again, if you're not a believer in Jesus, if you have not yet put your faith in Christ, we would love to speak with you. Come talk to us after the service. For those of us here who are believers, for the church here, I think we can seek to bring this message home with this question. How will life be different? if I trust in this truth more? What is life like if this truth is true? How will I live my life differently because of this truth? Just to keep it simple, I think we could, we could really boil it down into two things. First of all, it fortifies our commitment. If we are struggling, if we're wavering in our commitment to Christ, if doubts enter our mind, we start to wonder, is it really worth it? Jesus 
like, the, like he speaks to the disciples, comes alongside and he comforts us. And he says it's worth it. The last will be first. There's not anyone who gives up X, Y, and Z who will not receive a hundredfold in this life and the life to come. It's meant to, to fortify, to solidify our resolve, our commitment to Christ. And on the flip side of that, maybe this is really just one thing, but maybe another shade of this is that it fuels our endurance then. I don't think this passage is assuming that everything's easy, as we said. It's with persecutions, taking up our cross. We need a passage like this, particularly in the moments, not so much when it's easy, but precisely in those times when it is hard. When we are like Peter and we're saying, Jesus, we gave up everything. What, what's this all about? Maybe that's a question that comes to your mind some weeks, some days. Maybe that's a thought you have. Like, Jesus, what, what is this all about? Like, is this worth it? Am I just following you for nothing? We need a passage like this to come in to speak louder than those doubts, louder than our pain. We need Jesus to remind us that it is indeed worth it. And maybe if you're here today and, 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 and things are, maybe you're, at, maybe you're in a moment right now where you're not feeling that as much, where you're able to be a little bit stronger for the rest of us, maybe the application is how you can encourage others with this truth, especially those in our church who are facing circumstances or, or sacrifices that come from falling Christ. So consider someone, maybe think of a name of someone that you can encourage in our church this week with this truth, that falling Jesus is worth it. Those who are last, those who give up what it takes to follow Christ in this life will be first. And the beautiful thing, too, about this passage is that this isn't just some principle that Jesus kind of holds off at an arm's length distance from himself as this is just something that applies to him, so something, or applies to us, so something that he calls us to do. But as we'll see in the very next passage, Jesus is going to further this theme of the, of the last being first and the first being last, as he calls us to servant leadership, we might say. But he himself is the servant par excellence. As Mark 10.45 says, Jesus came as a servant not to be served, but to serve. The Son of Man did not come to be served. That's what we would expect. The expected king is one who shows up and we serve him. The unexpected king is one who shows up and he serves us. And not only does he serve us, but he serves us to the extent of giving his life for us as a ransom for many, as a payment for our sin, in other words, buying us out of the slavery of sin. Jesus himself embodies the unexpected ranking of his kingdom. He, the first, becomes the last so that we, the last, might become first. And that's what we celebrate each week as we remember the gospel in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a picture of this reality. The, the bread and, and, the, and the cup are these pictures that God himself, Christ himself, has given us of the gospel, of his body and his blood specifically, as it's given for believers in death. And it's a reminder of the reality that he, the first, became last, so that we, the last, would become first, that he has paid our debt, he became a ransom, paying the, uh, the, the sin debt that we owed before a holy God so that we might be restored and have a right relationship with him. And because the Lord's Supper is a picture of this salvation, that means that it's specifically for those who have 
then placed their faith in Christ to receive that salvation. And so if you're here today with us and you're not yet a believer in Jesus, we're incredibly glad to have you with us this morning, but we would just ask that you would refrain at this time from coming forward to take the elements. I'll remind you that 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that we are to take the Lord's Supper in a what it calls a worthy way, that is a way that's fitting, that's appropriate to what it means, lest we eat and drink judgment on ourselves. The Lord's Supper, in other words, is for all those living in repentant faith and in conformity, fittedness with the gospel. This doesn't mean that we are sinless. The Lord's Supper, of course, assumes that we're not. That's the whole point. But it does mean that we have placed our faith in Christ. We've denied ourselves, taken up our cross. We are striving to follow him, albeit imperfectly, without any known unrepentant sin. And so if that's you this morning,